Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs and I'm a hematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemisphere. So today I'm joined by both a haematologist and a neurologist to discuss a condition that straddles several different specialties. Dr. Shirley Dessar is a consultant haematologist and honorary associate professor based at University College London Hospital. And Michael Lunn is professor of clinical neurology based at University College London and the National Hospital for Neurology at Queen Square. They published a hemisphere paper last year entitled Comprehensive Diagnosis and Management of Poems. And in this podcast, we will focus on some of the diagnostic challenges that POEMS presents, how you discuss a complex condition like this in simple terms, what challenges and opportunities cross-specialty working brings, and some of the uncertainties about the condition and the ways forward. So the first question I want to ask you both, and I'll start with Shirley, is how did you both um, end up being interested in such a rare condition like this? Yes, thank you. Um, so my background in haematology is is myeloma based and during my registrar training and subsequently uh, when I became a consultant I was in a myeloma clinic. Our proximity to Queen Square having it in the same trust meant that we already had some established uh, collaborations and my uh, supervisor at the time and our colleague Professor Yong, Kui Yong, um, was in con- communication with Professor Mary Riley at Queen Square and we there was the commencement of a joint clinic um, to look at some of these patients. So that's how it started but I think um, once um, Mike Lunn joined uh, the team as a consultant um, at, uh, on his side we got into the clinic in a more si- sort of systematic fashion it became more frequent more regular and I think we both came to it from our different angles, but it, it it's it is a fascinating disease to start with. It, it is multi-systemic, and my own personal approach journeys is although I'm a hematologist, I I do love the physicianly aspect of of hematology. You have to look at the patient as a whole. You have to understand all the nuances of the condition, and I've I've always valued working very closely with with Mike uh, because I see medicine through a different lens as well as my own. So I think it's it's been an organic process. It's grown, but I think poems is is such a unique and fascinating condition, and one in which you can see amazing change if you pick the diagnosis up early and treat effectively. So that I think is really my my the way I got in. How about you, Mike? I think that's uh, very similar, really, for me. Um, it was this collaborative working that was always great fun that I, I took over from uh, Mary Riley and uh, in that in that joint clinic. I used to sit in that clinic occasionally as a as a more junior doctor and was fascinated by the complexity of some of the patients. But I suppose there were uh, when I uh, got my consultant job and had to start making my own uh, competent decisions. Uh, the, the challenging patients are always the most fun. Uh, they're the most intellectually difficult and uh, they're most satisfying to solve. And I mean, there's one particular patient uh, who I, I remember extremely well, who was young 
young but very disabled over a short period of time who had been through more than one other neurology centre and um, then came to us. And uh, I always, we perhaps always have to an extent the benefit of uh, retrospect and looking at everything else that everybody's done and failed that in a way, uh, which I suppose puts us at a bit of an advantage. It is much more difficult right at the beginning. Um, and yet this patient was very complex um, with systemic disease, with all sorts of interesting things um, in, in internal organs and skin and nerves. Uh, and uh, in some ways, it felt like a very wholesome disease that didn't look very mysterious from the outside. Um, but actually, when you looked into it, you thought, how can all these things happen together? So it became a fascinating case in its own right um and uh it was solved fairly straightforwardly and uh, as it turned out with a, a bit of additional uh thought um and then the, the patient is was then fixed and we now see him from being totally disabled he still comes back to the clinic and it's enormously satisfying seeing him uh, nearly 20 years later now um being normal but it was then a few other very similar cases think oh i've seen this before um and, and and nobody else has seen it before because it's so rare and actually now that we um uh, see them many of these cases it, it, despite their uh, variability um and differences actually they look largely the same uh, uh, as one another and so it's enormously satisfying to be able to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together uh, 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 recognize all the different aspects of it and say okay well that that is what this is and and then have a treatable condition that um, uh, make people get better from so it's a very satisfying place to be of course it's only one of the many diseases that we do deal with um, but uh, at, as we've developed a reputation, we've seen more and more patients. We're able to give them more and more comprehensive therapy. We're extremely lucky being in a centre where we can go from the beginning to the end, uh, from initial symptomatology through the diagnosis, through complex treatment to rehabilitation, and and hopefully back to normal life. So uh, it's it, it it feels like a very wholesome place to be, and uh, I think we both enjoy it, and we we enjoy each other's intellect and company at the same time so it's great so both of you actually alluded to the sort of well the, both the importance and the challenges of diagnosis so Shelley, you mentioned um the sort of big if of if people have been diagnosed early enough in terms of the sort of recovery that can be expected and mike on a few times you mentioned just how challenging this can be particularly if you don't see it very often so i, I was struck in your paper actually by that message of just how important and how common delayed diagnosis or misdiagnosis is. Um, Mike, starting with you, would you be able to kind of just say a little bit about what a journey to diagnosis might look like for um, a patient with poems and the different steps at which it might either be missed or or caught? Yeah, so um, sadly, the diagnosis is often um, slow and perhaps delayed. One of the interesting features of some of the data we've uh, um, produced is that the average timed diagnosis was about 17 months, uh, which is a, quite a long time. That is now getting shorter. The other uh, thing that we discovered was about 50% of patients um, made their own diagnosis, uh, at least had suggested it. Uh, and quite often it was rebuffed by the clinician to whom it was suggested uh, and that's because those patients uh, we, we've all in medicine become 
very focused on one disease or one area we've become super specialists and so the patient journey if the patient uh starts off with a neuropathy uh, and numb tingly feet or some pain uh, if it's painful they might end up in a rheumatologist uh, straight away perhaps or uh, and then they're, they're off down a wrong path they might end up at a neurologist but the neurologist has to think more broadly than the neuropathy uh, they might appear randomly with a, a hematological problem uh, and almost no neuropathy at all and because the p of poems is polyneuropathy um, the haematologist doesn't necessarily immediately think about it if the patient doesn't complain of the polyneuropathy. So there, at the early stage where symptoms are mild, uh, you can be tripped up if you don't start thinking more broadly. Um, we, we did um, then publish some, if the paper gets, if the person gets to a neurologist, we published a paper that suggested if you have a conduction slowing neuropathy, a demyelinating neuropathy, uh, um, uh, then you can really rapidly get to a diagnosis um, by doing a serum immunofixation. That's a very simple test uh, on the blood and measuring uh, uh, VEGF, a vascular endothelial growth factor, uh, both of which only cost about £40 each, um, but can be used within a sort of series of blood tests that you would be using in your conduction slowing neuropathy uh, um, blood set. Uh, and that would give you the diagnosis right at the beginning, because there's very little else that produces those an abnormal lambda light chain paraprotein and a very high VEGF uh, in the context of a conduction slowing neuropathy. So that's just a uh, that's a change in perhaps um, uh, diagnostic strategy that we need to try and introduce to neurologists um, uh, because they can now do a VEGF. Uh, and if um, neurologists can access that which should be fairly easy um, then they can make that leap early on without going through several other stages um, I think in the uh, uh, perhaps I won't I won't speak for for, for for Shirley's side of things and hematology and where the diagnosis gets missed there but um, uh, I think probably uh, if people miss those steps they then get treated for a conduction slowing neuropathy because a neurophysiologist might say, well, this is conduction slowing, it must be CIDP, and the patient gets uh, steroids, which then squash the VEGF, and then it becomes more difficult to find, or they get lots of IVIG, and it takes several cycles at six weeks each to work out they haven't responded, so it might be six months before they haven't responded, and then somebody thinks again. So I think the, the message is, um, for, for my neurology colleagues, and perhaps my haematology colleagues referring to neurology, is uh, if you've done the if you've got a neuropathy and it's a conduction slowing neuropathy, then just think, could this be a bit more complicated than I think it is and do those tests. And uh, I mean, again, going back to the retrospect thing, um, uh, we have the advantage by the time we see patients, I have to say more like six months on now than 17 months on. Um, but uh, usually many of the other features are visible. There's some ankle swelling in the conduction of in the in the in the, ankle swelling uh, in the context of a neuropathy for a forty year old, for instance, would be really unusual. Not many forty year olds have ankle swelling, so you know that should ring a bell. And if you take somebody's shirt off, uh, which many clinicians fail to do, then you might find the classical skin lesions. Um, you have to look at the fingernails. This is something that we're all ta taught in MRCP. You know, are those fingernails normal or abnormal? Uh, is the colour of those, the, the toes normal or is it a bit acrocyanotic? We have to take the socks off. So it's something that 
um, uh, people perhaps have lost the skills of doing or they're too busy to do in a busy clinic um it but it is just thinking oh, i just need to go that extra step take the socks off take the shirt off um look for the exciting features that give me all the bits of the jigsaw puzzle ah ping got it um so it's um uh, it's it, some of it is just fun general medicine really so uh, all of those things can trip you up if you think of it at the beginning um in many respects it doesn't matter if you sort of over make the diagnosis if you think about it and you can reject it in a way it's better than if you haven't thought about it and you've missed it so um i guess that's that that that's uh, uh how i think things get missed or get picked up the other thing that makes people um uh, thankfully uh, get to the diagnosis more quickly is um being able to tell people about the diagnosis like this um uh, and educate people and we do try and um and give as many talks as we can. We publish useful papers like this one that help people uh, in their clinic that they can reference whenever they want to. Um, uh, you know, uh, patient information events. Um, it, it does get you know, the information gets around so that it, it gets in people's psyche and they do think about it. Brilliant. So, Shirley, what about people coming through the haematology? clinic or, or kind of I guess where there's the monoclonal gammopathy has been picked up but perhaps the other features haven't yet features haven't noticed what might a journey look like through the haematology clinic yeah so I think what Mike and I found over the years is that quite often poems is hidden in plain sight actually and because we've seen many many patients over many years we have bec just become adept at spotting the features you know and so we in, in publishing our paper we've been our various papers but most recently the, the comprehensive diagnosis paper um we were hoping to just draw out those features so that people spot them and i think in hematological circles i think the um monoclonal gammopathy which is lambda restricted primarily almost all are lambda restricted with um, myeloproliferation, so people have a high hemoglobin um, and high platelets, one should really try and think about this. Now, I think as Mike alluded to, modern medicine is sort of really disadvantages the poems patient because people are much more specialized. So even in hematology, of course, I mean, I think I'm speaking from a, the perspective of a, a, a specialist hospital. So we have people who specialize in MPN, we have people who are plasma cell people, etc. I think I mean, most hospitals will have a hematologist who will see high platelets or erythrocytosis and think, okay, is this a, you know, is this a mild, an MPN? Should we do a JAK2, etc. But I think people tend to compartmentalize these different problems. And so someone who's dealing with an MPN type thing will very rarely even think about doing a protein electrophoresis because it just doesn't enter their 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 sphere, you know. And, and I think that is, a, if we're going to get all philosophical about it, I think the way medicine is practiced nowadays is, is it, it's very, it's, a, it's sad, actually. I think there are many plus points of being very specialist because if you have a problem that requires hyper-specialization, then you're in the money, you know. But if you have multi-system problems, you need someone to join the dots. And I think that is where people can fall between the cracks. And that is why Mike, I mean, we've been at pains, as Mike says, to, to, to give talks and to 
publish things that will be helpful uh, to make it easy for people to pick it up. And I have to say, as we, the more we've done over the years, the more people do get in touch and say, oh, could this be poems? And it's always better to say it could be, but it isn't. Um, in fact, this week alone, we've had, a, you know, two or three. Well, I gave a talk last week in the Midlands about poems and uh, people, they think about it. They think, oh, my gosh, have I missed poems along the way? And uh, we've had some emails and, you know, that is great because if we, you know, what, what I always say to people is when we think someone may have poems, in our minds, it's it's like an almost an emergency, a medical emergency, because every week that you delay the diagnosis usually means months of rehab for the patient at the other end, plus or minus worsening performance status because they often have cardiorespiratory compromise and other things, which means more therapy to get them optimized, etc., just just one just to clarify one particular thing with this i guess if you're a if you're kind of in a i don't know mgus clinic or something else where someone might be coming through and you think about poems and you do a vegf um and it's normal um is that how unlikely does that make it is, is a is a sort of normal vegf really almost incompatible with um in a patient not on steroids um it, is that almost incompatible with poems or are there some kind of um, other things that you've got to think about apart from the steroid, um, the, the impact of steroids here. Mike, do you want to go for that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't seen in, exactly with those caveats. We haven't seen many patients with poems who have a normal veg effort presentation. Um, uh, I think the veg uh, the veg is definitely squashed by by steroids, um, uh, but otherwise, it would be unusual. And the veg is usually very high. Uh, extremely high i mean at levels that you don't see with any other disease because some other things do push the vegf up a bit iron deficiency um hypoxia disorders you know whether it's just copd or sleep apnea um uh we've had a few patients who've had met hemoglobinemia who've you know pushed their vegf up as well um yes. you know so there are things that make it go up uh, but very little keeps it suppressed yes and so it is only in though in the criteria you have to have a uh, a positive neuropathy, and you have to have a monoclonal uh, uh, disorder, uh, whether that's uh, a solitary plasmacytoma, um, which may not be secretory, mm. uh, or whether it's the evidence of that secretory uh, uh, monoclonal disorder in the blood, for instance. So you have to have the polyneuropathy in that, and then the VEGF is uh, not necessary, mm. but in, in pra practical terms, it's very seldom we mm. see a patient at presentation who hasn't got a VEGF that is exceedingly high. Yeah. Okay. Now that's useful. And so it's a really useful biomarker. It's, I mean, it's unusual in biomarker terms, actually. It is not specific. Yes. But in the right context, it is hugely sensitive. You have to have it in the right context. You can't just say, oh, patient comes through the door, test the VEGF. Is it high? Got poems? Is it low? Hasn't got poems? It's it's part of the jigsaw puzzle, but it is a, an exceptionally good biomarker. <laughs> One so point I just wanted to add was that in terms of the polyneuropathy, we have seen occasional patients with Castleman variant of poems who have very little in the way of polyneuropathy, if anything, actually. Isn't that the, the case, Mike? Yeah, those Castleman's patients have almost no neuropathy at all. Um, uh, but they might have symptoms that sound polyneuropathic. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've had certainly had patients who've, one particular patient who 
uh, saw Mary Riley um, 10 years before we subsequently saw them, who I still have the letters of that uh, um, uh, interaction where the symptoms sounded like polyneuropathy, but Mary could find no evidence of it clinically or electrophysiologically. And 10 years later came back with a much more florid picture, which had a clear polyneuropathy with it. So, uh, But Castleman's tends to have uh, very little or no neuropathy, but I think, Shirley, I would say that in every case of Castleman, we've seen the VEGF is sky high. Mm. Um, absolutely. I was going to say recently at the meeting I was present, I was at, the, the team there presented their case of a patient who had everything but neuropathy. And they were really quite befuddled by that, which is fair enough, because P for poems, etc. But actually, that is one scenario where you don't see much polyneuropathy. And and an important point while I might while I'm on the subject is that such patients, even though they have so-called Castleman variant, they should not be treated with uh, drugs like siltuximab because they they need poems treatment. That's another thing. We've seen a few patients who've because of the Castleman finding in their um, nodes or whatever, they've gone on to have siltuximab, and that's actually just delayed the treatment for the neuropathy, which is which is antiplasma cell. Yeah. I think going back further on from that, there's always these uh, uh, extra little tips, aren't there? Poems doesn't have to be poems um, in terms of all the all of those features. Right. Um, uh, you certainly need enough of them. And in general, you would uh, definitely like to see a P and an M. That's pretty crucial, except in that Castleman circumstance. But in the mm-hmm. Castleman circumstance, which would have a VEGF that was very high just because it was Castleman, you then need some of the other features in order to get at least an OEMS or a, 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 or, a, or a PMS or yeah. a, 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 you need at least three of those features to really make yourself comfortable. And of course, in the diagnostic criteria, there are many more. And actually, when you look, you actually find you've got lots more bits of the jigsaw. So you even have to think beyond the box of poems uh, yes. uh, as an acronym. Um, uh, but um, you have to think within the whole diagnostic criteria, and there are there are uh, there's a bit of boxing and coxing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Although actually, we we ne- we don't ever find that we're hammering uh, a, a case I- I- into the diagnosis that, that that patients fit themselves nicely uh, into the diagnosis. Nearly always, when you look hard enough. So it turned out that we had more to talk about. Um, with Shirley and with Mike about poems than um, I'd initially anticipated. And so we decided to make this into a part one and part two will follow shortly. So please um, do tune in soon for the second part of this podcast. And in the meantime, um, do have a look at their poems paper on the Hemisphere website. And we'll be back with part two soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. All of Hemisphere's content is open access and can be found at www.hemispherejournal.com. We hope you will join us for future podcast episodes.